0: welcome to City Break Ideas, episode 17. City Break Ideas is the episode I do on the first week of every month, taking a little break from City Breaks in general. As it happens, we're currently between series, having just finished the 27th and final episode of City Breaks London. And for these episodes, I pick two or three travel bloggers, travel websites that I really like, trawl through them looking for City Break Ideas, with the owner's permission, obviously and bring you, I hope, a nice little round-up of things to think about. I had some lovely feedback from the guests from last month's episode. Lanny from Food and Travel.com said, To hear our posts through your perspective, breathe new life and excitement into them. Well, that's nice, isn't it? And Cynthia from com made me laugh. I'd written to all three saying, If you've got any feedback, that'll be handy. And she wrote back and said, You have such a professional demeanour, I'm not sure what feedback I can offer. Well, praise indeed. Thank you both. Let's see if we can keep the standard up this month. OK, so I have three new websites to tell you about, including, rather excitingly, one which won the Best British Travel Blog Award in 2019. So, I propose to waffle, not at all, but to get straight on with it and introduce you straight away to the first website I've chosen for this month, www.travelforawile.com. Remember, all the website addresses will be given in the show notes. There'll be so much from all three of them really worth looking at that I haven't got time to mention, so I hope you'll make use of the addresses and go googling yourself. So then, Travel for a While, run by Anda, who introduces herself as follows. This is me, Anda. I was 15 when I went on my first trip through Europe, treating it indifferently, a couple of weeks with friends from school. We got out of a bus, a crowd of loud kids, but as I stepped on the lawn of Sforza Castle in Milan, my reality suddenly changed. I had no idea such places existed. I fell in love with the city, with Italy, and became irredeemably addicted to travelling. And it goes on to explain that this was 20 years ago, that she's still very, very keen on travelling and, I don't know yet if I'll be able to travel full-time, so I thought I'll start planning to travel for a while, whatever that might be, and maybe share my experiences along the way. Sections on the website include one called Taste the World, full of restaurant reviews, food tour write-ups, lots of info about street food in different places, and lots of little asides, for example, on coffee in Italy. She explains the whole stand-up, sit-down thing, how one's cheaper than the other, and goes on to explain something which sounds obvious, but which I realised, having read what she has to say, I did not actually fully understand. Namely, what will you get if you ask for un caffè in Italy, or un latte? I can tell you that the answer in neither case was the one that I had thought. She reminds us too that Italians in general wouldn't drink a cappuccino after 11 o'clock in the morning. I did actually know that rule and I love cappuccino so I break it so I was amused to read Ander on the topic. Personally, she writes, I love Italian cappuccino so much that I just have to bend this particular rule for the smooth milk foam that you really can't find anywhere else. Yes, quite. My sentiments entirely. But I also liked it that she went on and said there are things you really shouldn't do in Italy. Don't, for example, drink coffee from a plastic cup while walking around. Coffee is there to be appreciated, and she says, quote, don't ask for caramel, chocolate syrup, or pumpkin flavour. Remember, you're in Italy, and coffee is just that coffee. There's also a section called Experiences, with some interesting posts on, for example, volunteering at an olive farm in Puglia, southern Italy, or taking a food tour in Edinburgh. And for the purposes of today's episode, I went burrowing in the destination section to see what I could find, and I picked out first a city which I'm ashamed to say I had never heard of, and that is Plovdiv, at least I hope that's how you say it, in Bulgaria. As soon as I started reading the description, I began to feel I really should have heard of it. It's Europe's oldest inhabited city, been there since 4000 BC. It was the European capital of culture in 2019. It's Bulgaria's second largest city after Sofia. How have I managed to get this far without discovering it? But that's okay, Anda tells us all about it. There's the old part, she says. Think small museums, cobblestone streets, painted houses, antique shops, churches, amazing views. There's a fortress, there's the remains of a Roman stadium and a Roman forum. And as so often in this part of Europe, not just Roman remains, but also a long Muslim heritage, Exemplified in this case by the Jumea Mosque. There's a trendy part to Plovdiv as well, called Kapana, where the streets are lined with terraces, cosy little coffee shops, arts and crafts shops, lots of bars and restaurants. Somewhere where street art is quite a feature. Somewhere where you will notice that windows, shutters, facades, buildings are all creatively decorated. And so too are some of the rubbish bins and electrical boxes. There's one particular street at the back of the theatre with a series of huge murals painted by nine different artists. What about Bulgarian food? Here's Ander's introduction. Traditional Bulgarian food has absorbed a lot from its neighbours, Greek and Turkey. Bulgarians usually have a salad followed by a main dish or maybe a plate of different appetisers to share. The simplest choice for a meal is a Shopska salad followed by a meat dish. I checked up Shopska Salad and discovered that we should be thinking tomatoes, peppers, feta cheese and cucumber. There's a handy list of top restaurant recommendations, including a Greek one where you can eat, I don't know how to say this, gyros maybe, G-Y-R-O-S, which is basically meat cooked in a marinade which will be made of yoghurt, lemon, garlic and oregano. There's a Turkish restaurant on the list where you can enjoy lamb kebab and something called kunefe. We are told that means a sweet cheese pastry. There's a gastro bar with reinvented traditional recipes. Meatballs with lutentitsa, perhaps, which is a sweet red pepper sauce. And, of course, the wine will be from Bulgaria. And top of the list, a restaurant whose name I also can't pronounce. P-A-V-A-J. Pavai, maybe? Where you can enjoy lots of local flavours. Sausage, zucchini balls, aubergine salads. And, says Ander, unlike most of Bulgaria, there is here in Plovdiv quite a large craft beer scene. She helpfully suggests some actual bars and terraces to go visiting, including one which claims to serve a hundred different beers. And just at the end, there's a link to a separate post on A Day in Sofia, so the capital of Bulgaria, where you can learn all about the Russian church, the cathedral, the mosque, the central mineral bath, it being a spa city with natural hot springs. I did not know that. So there's lots to explore, but I have to admit I did enjoy Anda's little dose of honesty when she commented that a big part of Sofia was built during the communist period, and that's not the most interesting style of architecture. I like those comments not because they're doing somewhere down, but because it makes me think that when she does praise something, she really means it, and I can trust her opinions. So much then for Bulgaria's second city, whose acquaintance I've been very pleased to make, thanks to Anda. I wanted to pick a second city that she focuses on, and I thought, where else to choose but Milan? A place which first converted her all those years ago to the idea of travel. As Ander says, it's not top of the list of tourist destinations in Italy, that being because they've got so many others. It's better known, really, for its fashion scene and because it's the financial centre of Italy. But there's much more to it than that, she says. And so she decided to write a post about the top ten attractions in Milan. stunning gothic cathedral obviously especially the rooftop because up there you can see expanses of marble like a complicated lacework you can walk among pinnacles spires and hundreds of statues and you'll have a great panoramic view over the city on a clear day you can even see the alps in the background there is of course also the twatzer castle the building which first converted Ander to the idea of travel A magnificent 14th century building with, wait for it, no fewer than seven different museums on site. So that's definitely the history buffs catered for. And if shopping's more your thing, then there is the hugely glamorous shopping centre just near the cathedral, the Vittorio Emanuele II gallery. You may well want to shop in there, or at least browse, but also look out for the four mosaic coats of arms, and especially the one which is a symbol of the city of Turin because there's a little Milanese tradition connected to that. I quote, It will bring good luck if you spin on your heel over the bull's testicles. You will see a lot of people doing that. Also in that area, there's the La Scala Theatre, Teatro alla Scala in Italian, one of the world's most famous opera houses, with a truly magnificent interior, and a stage on which really all the great names are performed. A helpful link is provided in case you want to go and see if there are any tickets available when you're visiting. Of course, you'll also want to go to the Santa Maria delle Grazie Monastery because that's where Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of The Last Supper is. It's a mural painting on a wall, in fact. Super famous, despite the fact that it's had to be restored many times over the centuries. Something to do with Leonardo's technique. Unlike those clever fresco painters in Florence, He didn't paint onto wet plaster, which makes the paint last. He painted straight onto a drywall. But nevertheless, you surely want to see it. Anda said one of her favourite things to do in Milan was to go round the city centre on tram number one. It's a historic tram. Wooden steps, wooden benches. I have seen pictures of it and it's highly polished and well maintained. Definitely the way I would want to cross the city centre. And then she gives us some little cultural tips too. This time on La Peregivo that very Italian moment in the early evening between finishing work and eating dinner, when, quote, seemingly all of Milan stops in a bar for a cocktail. She explains that an aperitivo Milan style will involve some free snacks, possibly peanuts, possibly something a little more substantial, and she outlines the aperitivo etiquette for us. In Milan, she says, you pay for the drink, the food is free, so that means the price of the drink might be a little higher than usual. For the Milanese, this is a snack, something you have before you go on to dinner. But for tourists, you might be able to turn it into a little meal. But of course, you shouldn't overdo it. Quote, just don't pile up food on your plate as if you were at an all-inclusive resort. It is a lovely tradition a very Italian moment that you can build into your day. And I agree with Ander, best to make the most of it, but not take advantage. This post too finishes with links to other posts on related topics, for example, day trip ideas from Milan, one to Bergamo and one to Lake Maggiore. So lots and lots to explore. And thanks very much to Anda for sharing it with us. Let's move on then to website number two, which I picked for today, which also has a very Italian theme. In fact, it's called www.italiantripabroad.it And it opens like this. Hello, we are Toti and Ale. Welcome to Our Little World. We're always keen to discover new destinations, experience incredible adventures and enjoy new routes. Our desire to discover the world pushed us to create Italian Trip Abroad and today the blog is translated into two languages, that's English and Italian, and we reach over 40,000 people every month. They promise us guides, itineraries, tips and generally just lots of travel inspiration. Totti and Alessia are both Italian, but in fact they met in London, and London is where they are still based. So when browsing their website, I looked first for the Italian section. Lots there. There are posts with titles like 20 panoramic views in Rome and 25 best beaches in Puglia. That's on the heel of the boot of Italy, I think. That's my description, and I can hear that it's a rather unromantic way of describing a lovely corner of Italy and one that you will surely be keen to visit when you find out the titles of some of their best beaches. One where you can have a cocktail on the promenade, others with secluded little coves, small towns suitable for families, quiet fishing villages. Some advice on organising your own Puglia road trip. There's another post entitled 35 most famous landmarks in Italy, and yes it does include all the ones you probably know about, the Bridge of Sighs in Venice, the Uffizi in Florence, etc. But there are plenty of others that you may not have considered. How about, for example, visiting the Taormina Ancient Greek Theatre in Sicily, or the world's second biggest amphitheatre after the Colosseum in Rome, namely the Arena di Verona, former site of gladiator fights, currently hosting the world-famous annual opera festival. And city breaks wise, there's another post entitled The Most Beautiful Cities in Italy. It lists 25, lots that you'll know, lots that you may not. Parma, Bari, Matera, Salerno. I bet, writes, I don't know if it's Toti or Alessia, I bet you have no idea where Salerno is. You're right, I have not. It's a port city in southwestern Italy. Think direction of Naples, perhaps, where you will find the ruins of a Roman temple, a medieval castle, the beautiful 18th century Minerva's garden. So yes, definitely a post to consult if you fancy Italy again, but would like to go somewhere a little different. There's also a major section on London, with posts entitled, for example, 15 things to do in Greenwich, which reminds you not just about the Cutty Sark and the Painted Hall and the idea of a picnic in Greenwich Park, but offers some very practical advice too. If you haven't planned ahead and brought your picnic with you, they say, then these tips might be of use. There's a local Marks and Spencers, just next to the Cutty Sark. If you decide to eat in Nando's, you've made a good choice, because there you will get the perfect view over Canary Wharf. There's another post entitled, 13 ways to enjoy London in the fall, including suggestions such as, go to Little Venice and walk along the river, surrounded by golden trees and romantic lights from the traditional boats berthed there or hop aboard a waterboat taxi and sail down the Regent's Canal towards Camden Town. Or maybe you'd like to visit St Luke's Mews, and if you haven't heard of that, the post will tell you exactly where it is, and when you see the picture, it may look familiar, because scenes from the film Love Actually were recorded there. There's a post entitled East London Bucket List, with the brilliant suggestion that you should go to the Duck and Waffle for breakfast, because there you will get breakfast with a view. And then you can go on and explore Shoreditch, Brick Lane, Spitalfields Market, perhaps take a ride on the Emirates cable car, or visit the Olympic Park in Stratford. So those two things, Italy and London, are very much features of the website. They're specialist topics, if you like, but there are lots of other posts about travel that they themselves have undertaken. Berlin, for example. There's a checklist of the main things to visit, things like the Reichstag, the Parliament Building rebuilt after World War Two with that glorious glass dome designed by Sir Norman Foster, the Holocaust Memorial nearby, and Museum Island, where you'll find five different museums on an island on the River Spree, a World Heritage site, in fact. Days of exploring to do there, but perhaps you want to home in on the Pergamon Museum, where you can see the Ishtar Gate, built originally in about 575 BC as one of the gates to the city of Babylon. How amazing is that? Berlin, of course, very much has its quirkier side. You'll probably want to go to the East Side Gallery, which is about one kilometre's worth of the Berlin Wall, the bit that remains today. Now an open-air art gallery. You probably want to see Checkpoint Charlie, too, which was the former crossing point from East to West Berlin. Now a museum. Perhaps you want to get your Cold War history brushed up on a cycle tour. That's possible. Or actually, you could go on a tour of the city in a Trabi. That car that anyone in East Germany who actually had a car, and that certainly wasn't everybody, possessed. There are tips for things you may not think of, for example, going ice skating at the Potsdamer Platz and visiting the KdW. That's German for KDW and stands for Kaufhaus department store, des Westens of the West. It was the showpiece store in West Berlin, when the city was divided. Eight floors of absolute luxury. Think carrots. And a food hall, particularly, that has to be seen to be believed. I know I've taken lots of groups of students there, and the boys particularly always say, but why are we going to a shop? Afterwards, they say, okay, that was quite cool. There are seasonal tips. If you go to Berlin in February, you will be freezing, but you will also catch the Berlinale, the Berlin Film Festival. And if you go in the run-up to Christmas, the city is full of those wonderful German Christmas markets, which, dare I say, no other country seems to be able to do quite as well. Toti and Alessia have a suggested two-day itinerary for Berlin, a mix of the top spots and some little quirky things to spice it up a bit. So all in all, then definitely a website to consult, whether you want to know more about Italy, more about London, or just browse through all the other places they visited. And thirdly then, www.bigworldsmallpockets.com, which opens like this. Hi, I'm Steph, passionate budget traveller for 10 years and more. Join me to discover how you can travel more and spend less, as I share the highs and lows of seeing the world on a shoestring. She goes on to explain that she's originally from Jersey in the Channel Islands, which she left at the age of 19 on quote, a wild adventure in southern Africa. Six months later, having largely lived in a tent, become a veteran of African bus rides, and an amateur sailor on a catamaran voyaging across the Mozambique Channel, I was hooked. There followed then lots of student travels to Australia, New Zealand, North Africa, Europe, followed by two years spent largely in Latin America and Australia, and gradually becoming a full-time nomad, as she puts it. Steph says that it's off-the-beaten-track places she really likes, a focus on backpacking cheaply as a solo female, collecting, quote, all the tips, advice and stories to share with you with a big smile. And as she modestly adds, in November 2019, my efforts were recognised and I was voted the Best British Travel Blog at the prestigious British Travel Awards in London. There is, by the way, a section on blogging on the website. Telling us that Steph does offer consultancy, so if you too would like to improve your travel blog, perhaps you want to have a look at that. I focus mainly on the destination sections, which include every continent. I did a little spot checking and realized that most of the places covered are at the very least places where Steph has travelled for a number of weeks or maybe months, or indeed places where she's actually lived. So the whole thing has a tone that I would call authoritative knows what she's talking about but also pleasantly chatty. Where on earth, I thought, shall I focus? I browsed the South America section, came across Argentina, where there's a whole range of posts. An itinerary for 10 days in Argentina, for example. A post about a trip to the wine region of Salta, or one to the Iguazu Falls. Lots and lots of stuff about when to go, how to travel around, personal safety issues, and even some packing advice which opens like this. Argentina is one mighty diverse land. If you are travelling to several destinations in this country, you'll need a range of clothes and essentials to keep you comfortable across all climates. That's what I mean by authoritative. This is not a list copied from somewhere else. This is a list born out of experience. OK, so for my purposes today, the post I was most attracted to, on Argentina at least, is the one entitled Three Days in Buenos Aires. City Breaks has yet to go to Buenos Aires, and Steph's introduction is certainly enticing. This city, she says, is basically impossible not to fall in love with. The home of Tango, full to the brim, with wonderful museums, graffiti, green spaces, great restaurants. It practically overflows with atmosphere, passion and character. From its historic streets to its modern, trendy suburbs, this is a vibrant city, brimming with life and taking everyone along with her for the ride. Just my kind of place. You've got to read on, haven't you? And again, I like the tone. Steph points out that you could spend a lifetime getting to know this city, but what she's offering us here is a three day itinerary for things that first time visitors are likely to want to do. How sensible and practical is that? Okay, so here we go. Day one. Base yourself in the Palermo district. It's young, fun, trendy, lots of cafes and vegetarian restaurants, the eco-park is there, the botanic gardens are there, and Steph suggests that you spend most of the day just looking round, and that then maybe at about three o'clock you could join a graffiti and street art walking tour as, quote, a great way to learn more about this district and its political standing. After that, it will be time for dinner. That reads to me like a great start, advising me of somewhere to immerse myself, and soak up the atmosphere, not to rush about, and generally just to get the hang of the place. For day two then, she suggests a little more activity. Go to the Retiro district in the morning, she says. Think, well-heeled area, beautiful historic buildings, several embassies, grand avenue-like streets, oh, and a fancy bookshop, El Ateneo Grande Splendid. Apparently that's a city icon. And also lots of nice green leafy spaces. After a bit of wandering, perhaps take yourself to the Ricoleta Cemetery. Think Père Lachaise in Paris, she says, the last resting place of many famous people, including Eva Peron. You could take a tour, or you could just wander, and you could certainly allow an hour or two to see it properly. And then for the afternoon, why not hop south to the districts of La Boca and San Telmo? La Boca is the home of tango, not the safest area for tourists but a short taxi ride should get you there safely. Stick to the few main streets and see the famous coloured houses. Again, allow an hour or so for that, and then spend the evening at a tango show in nearby San Telmo, and there are links given for places you could research that. For day three then, why not hit the city centre? You could go on a tour, or there are suggestions so that you can build your own self-guided walk. A reminder to, quote, Just keep an eye on your safety, as you would in any busy city. And again, I like the idea that Steph's saying, why not allow all day for that? Seems realistic. Pleasantly unhurried. A chance to just take things in. And then, quote, finish up in one of the amazing historic cafes of central Buenos Aires and enjoy some well-deserved people watching. There are, too, lots and lots of practical tips on accommodation, transport, etc. And the whole post filled me with enthusiasm to see the city and made me feel that even though I've never been to South America, this would be a good place to start to work out how to do it. And to round off, I thought, what has Steph got to offer us in Europe? And I picked out Dubrovnik, partly for the title of the post, which is How to See Dubrovnik for Less Than 80 Euros. This was written in 2018, so perhaps realistically we should up that now to 100 Euros, but bearing in mind, that Steph spent at least half of her allowance on somewhere to stay overnight, she really was doing the city fairly cheaply. I was attracted by her explanation of why she went. It's not because she's a Game of Thrones fan, she isn't. It's not because she likes the idea of visiting a city which is likely to be full of cruise ship passengers. It was because she was sort of passing on the way from somewhere to somewhere else and thought, hey, I don't know when I'll be in this area again, let's give it a go. And then when she got there, this is what she found. While this city is every bit as full of tourist madness as you would expect, it is also utterly, incredibly, absolutely stunning. Honestly, I was blown away by the beauty of this ancient walled city, perched above the blue Adriatic Sea with views to die for. A good reminder, I feel, that places which are very popular are usually very popular for a reason. So you've got to balance that up with the idea that Maybe they'll also be pretty full. So again, lots of tips on accommodation and travel, with a focus on a short, cheap visit. And top tip: do all the free things. And top of Steph's list would be wandering about the old town, which you can do for nothing and which is amazing. There's a beautiful Jesuit church, the bell tower, a plaza to do some people watching. And then she says, when you're sightseed out, as she puts it head to the hidden Busa Bar, which perches out on the cliffs beyond the city walls. Here, she says, you could pay for an expensive drink and enjoy the view, or, quote, I'd honestly suggest descending the steps to the cliffs below, where you can watch mad people jumping into the water, take in the adriatic views, sunbathe and swim, for free. She does then go on to list the one or two things that she does think were worth paying for. Walking the city walls, for example. Which is a Dubrovnik rite of passage. And if you're going to spend money on anything, she says, choose that. Her top tip is don't go in the daytime when they're packed with cruise tourists. Head up there in the early evening and enjoy the sunset. Amazing views, beautiful colours, half the number of people. And, says Steph, be aware that if you buy a ticket to walk the walls, that gives you free entrance to a fort which is on them as well. It has a pretty unpronounceable name. So I think I might leave you to check that out on the website. And although Steph says it's not for her, she knows that lots of people would be interested, and fair enough, she says, in their tour based on Game of Thrones. And she helpfully gives a link to some which have had good reviews and points out that some of them in fact include a ticket to the Outer Walls as well. So that's a way to save a little money if you're planning to do both. This post finishes with links to others that are related with titles like How to island hop in Croatia on a budget. 15 amazingly cheap things to do in Sarajevo. You get the picture. All good stuff, thank you very much. To Steph for all of this, and to Anda and Toti and Alessia for all the ideas given earlier on. That rounds up today's episode then, just leaves me to tell you a little bit about what to expect from City Breaks over the next few weeks. The London series has just finished, Another series is in the pipeline, and in between, we're going on a little experimental trip. At least I am. It's been bothering me that some of the lovely cities I've covered look as if they're finished. 19 episodes on Florence, for example. But actually, I'm more and more aware that there's lots more to bring you. And so, I have lined up a couple of episodes where I'm going to interview other experts on Florence and see what they can tell us that I didn't know. Firstly, next week there's going to be an interview with a company called Chow Florence about some of the tours that they do. Followed the week after that with an interview with somebody from Florence's tourist office on a little project that he's been working on, Dante-related, for the 700th anniversary, which is this year. And if that goes well, I think I might search out some more ideas and some more people to interview on some of the other cities I've covered. An interlude, if you will, and hopefully a fascinating one then followed by a brand new series on a beautiful city which I spent a week in recently doing the research and whose name I perhaps won't release just yet but which I hope you'll be excited about when you hear it. So then I'll finish today by reminding you that you can check up all the websites which I've covered today using the links which will be in the show notes or you could go a browsing and find some of our previous series City Breaks St. Petersburg, perhaps, or maybe City Breaks Paris. Thank you very much for your company today, and I do hope you'll be back to join me next week. Bye.